The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's Wednesday, August the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It has been a while since we checked in with our politics team, and that's partly because politics largely grinds to a halt during this summer recess. But it never stops entirely, so we did want to catch up on a few interesting developments and also perhaps look forward a little bit to what is coming down the track as we head into the autumn. To do all that, I'm joined by political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Jennifer Bray. Hello and long time no see. Hello. Hi, Hugh. I suppose um, before we start, Pat, I should say that there was a very, very enthusiastic uh, reaction to the um, the, the, the Bertie O'Hearn series. The, the words tour de force cropped up more than once in the emails that, that I received. And I'll give you one example here. Please, please, please encourage Pat Leahy to keep going with his impressions of Irish politicians, says Colm Collins. They are brilliant. I howled with laughter when he did Jackie Healy Ray. So well done, you. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and thanks to my cousin Colm for, for sending that in. And also to all the members of the uh, of my, my wider family who've been bombarding you with <laughs> complimentary <laughs> emails. Well, it worked, or at least it worked to such an extent that that, uh, that myself and the producer have said, we must do more of these things. Uh, we must, uh, we, we must uh, develop your thespian skills uh, <laughs> even more and delve into the history of Irish politics or indeed perhaps politics around the world. You know, um, maybe we could do the 1960 US presidential election. How's your Richard Nixon? No, don't do it now, please. Um, but but what we would do, we we would welcome suggestions for because yeah. the format did work. It was a little bit of a test, and we were we were very happy, and we were very gratified by by your reactions to it too. So if you have any ideas for similar stories from the past or political stories which we could explore in a, in a similar way, please do send them to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And perhaps we won't wait until next summer to do uh, to do the next. Uh, Indeed, indeed. No, I don't think we should. I think we should do something. We should definitely do something uh, sooner than that. Um, I said we were going to talk about things that had happened. I'm not sure whether the Ryan Tuberty extravaganza blow up is a political story, but I suppose it is. Everything has political ramifications, uh, Jennifer. And you couldn't stay away from it, partly because it's kind of in my wheelhouse and what I'm supposed to cover in here. I'm sick to death of it. I think I had to write about four pieces about Ryan Tuberty last week. But there are political ramifications to the whole thing, aren't there? I mean, ultimately, it is a political story. And I wonder what you think of some of the criticism that was bouncing around about Catherine Martin over the last week or so, that she hadn't been somehow hands-on enough or visible enough about it. Yeah, like it's a massive media story with a huge political element. That's the way I kind of look at it. It's not overwhelmingly politics, but 
obviously there is a, a huge element involving kind of Catherine Martin and the coalition party leaders. Um, the criticism around Catherine Martin, I think, is absolutely fair because I think no minister wants to be the story of the summer. That's the last thing you want. They want to take a break and they're, all, they're entitled to a break. However, these things do happen. And when they happen, you kind of have to be seen to be around um, addressing it. And I think her first failure has been a complete lack of visibility. I also think she's being really poorly advised because beyond the lack of visibility, when you do hear from her, it's just not convincing. Um, there is a real sense of kind of lethargy or just that she's not really at the wheel in relation to this, you know, in terms of uh, staying on top of, even if you had a minister who came out and said, right, okay, here's what the latest Grant Thornton report. Here's what I'm going to do to address it. Here's my timelines on the th other things that I'm waiting for. Meanwhile, I've received this. She's received a technical report outlining different options. Would a lot of that not just really be performative though? Because those processes not still need to go but through several hoops be. before they land really on her desk in a way that she can but that's, do anything that's Sometimes that's the job of a minister, even if you're mm. not, you know, you have to be seen to be out there and addressing it. And I think she's been two steps behind from the beginning, right back to kind of thinking on her feet and coming out with things that perhaps are not advisable, such as around, you know, the, her initial comments about paying the TV licence fee. She was very... Un Unsure-footed on that question. Yeah, and, this and is politics. Mm. The performative stuff matters. Sometimes the performative stuff is the only thing that matters, at least in the initial stage. And she has consistently, it seems to me, given mm. the impression of being reactive to events rather than being proactively on top of this, which is happening in her ministerial bailiwork and for which she has political responsibility. So when this thing blew up, first of all, none of us knew about it at the time. The public didn't know about it, but way back back in March when the um, the auditors started raising raising flags about, about some of these issues. She was informed about that there was something going on at that time and then she really seemed to step away from it so nothing seemed to happen. She, that, that does seem quite passive, doesn't it? And then as we know, she wasn't even, and, and, and this you would have thought would have been, you know, a source of some contention between her and RTE. She wasn't even informed that uh, the former Director General D Forbes had been had been suspended or then had resigned. Mm, which that was a massive issue. Sort of shows that things weren't working as they should do. Yeah, and I think actually the word you use is the perfect word, passive. That's the kind of general impression. Um, and also, this is probably a bit in-house, but... As a journalist working over the summer period, which I always do and every year I regret it, but I'll continue to do it. Yeah, but you're off on your holidays but next I'm off week my now. Holidays it's not really entirely a sob story. I don't want any DMs or any <laughs> emails. I don't want anyone to look at me. I'm going to disappear. <laughs> and I'm never coming back. No, but like over the over the summer period, as a journalist, like getting answers to questions, basic questions has been mm -hmm. really, really hard. Um, and I think, I think that's people don't see that criticism sometimes. that has been yeah. There's a huge frustration amongst journalists, amongst journalists. Ger like journalists, look, you know, trying to. And I'm talking the basics, Hugh. I'm not asking like, you know, for some elaborate mathematical explanation. Mm. So that's a problem. And sometimes people don't see that. And I think when you see then articles about her performance, there's a lot underneath that too. So I mean, this whole mess, which is what it is now, it does return to the political sphere, Pat, in September, I presume. I mean, there's an immediate, we are told, there's an immediate opening, gaping black hole in Ortiz finances. Not for the first time. There was one last year as well, but it looks like it's going to be bigger this year with the um, the decline in the licence fee revenue as people refuse to pay or forget to pay or whatever their, their licence fee. Yeah. So there's the huge existential crisis of what the hell is RT and what's it for into the future and how does Kevin Backhurst rebuild it? But there's also the immediate question that they have serious financial difficulties. Yeah, so it seems to me that there are kind of, there's two elements to this that, that, that have to be addressed. There's what happened and we're a good way into that, but we're no by no means, you know, towards the end of that yet, that there has yet to be a, a full account 
of what happened in RTE, why it happened, and who was responsible, and for where responsibility should uh, should sit at the door. And let's not forget that Dee Forbes, who uh, was the Director General of RTE, is, uh, has still not been in a position to come and give her side of the story. So until that happens, it seems to me there's going to be a gaping hole in that. But that side of the story is less important than the future-looking part of the story, which is about what is RTE for... How is it financed? There's two, again, there's, within that, there's two parts to that. There's the longer term question of RTE's purpose and how much that public service broadcasting remit costs the state to provide for, costs license fee pay- payers to provide for. And there's also the short term budget crisis at RTE last year. It needed a bailout of 15 million in the, uh, in the budget. It's going to need that and more this year to keep in a standstill position. But there is a massive political reluctance to start funneling more money towards RTE when, first of all, there hasn't been a full account of what happened uh, at the station. And second of all, the question of the big strategic question of what it's for, what it does in the future, what should it do or what shouldn't it do? Should, for instance, it be paying chunks of that licence fee for the right to broadcast British soap operas, for instance? That's, I guess, one of the questions and many other uh, uh, many other related and, uh, and separate questions. But there's a great reluctance in government just to start shoving money towards it until such time as those questions are answered. So I, I think the RT story is going to be with us. I mean, part the of the fault does lie with government, I would say, because nothing has been done on that front for the last 15 years, except endless reviews and committees and commissions which produced reports, which gathered dust on shelves and were ignored or long-fingered or were succeeded by yet another commission or committee yeah, or report. I think that's a fair point. There is some uh, culpability within government, but there's also culpability within management at RTE sure. for not, you know, for not constructing a model, a station that actually can be afforded within, within its available resources. You know, I don't have to tell anybody hear how media companies have to find that they have to cut their cloth according to their measure. And, um, and, and that is a very painful process for people in the media, as we all know. And, you know, maybe RT has been a little bit insulated uh, uh, from that. And I don't think it's going to remain insulated for, for much longer. There's one further point that I think is worth making. And, I, you know, I fully understand and support the journalists at RT who find themselves in a very difficult situation. But there is something to me, slightly unsatisfactory about journalists campaigning overtly for more funding from a government that they are covering in their day jobs. And I I just think that is something with the best will in the world they will have to keep an eye on. Is that an unavoidable tension, though, with a media organisation, a large component of which is journalism, and a lot of very good journalism is done in RTE, but it is, you know, it is part finance. In fact, it's largely financed by the state. So the tension's always going to be there. Yeah, perhaps it is, but I just think it's something that everybody needs to mind a little bit. 
Right. Well, there's other things that are happening, by the way, as well, uh, Jen. I am particularly excited and a little bit upset by the fact that I am also going to be away when the Electoral Commission, which we've discussed more this than once... It's basically just me holding the fort here be you for the next time. Yeah, you, you talking to yourself, you know, just reading reading bits from that morning's paper, Pat. That's, that's Doing what our, our listeners can look forward to. The Electoral Commission, the, the new body which now oversees and deals with all issues relating to elections in Ireland, is going to be releasing its most important document as far as the political establishment in this country is concerned, which is its constituency review. And we're going to get that next Wednesday. Are all political antennae a quiver at the prospect of this landing? A hundred percent. You know, uh, I think Pascal Donoghue summed it up well when he said last week that there's red hot political interest all across the Dáil and uh, and beyond. And he's right. People are, a lot of TDs are kind of anxiously awaiting it because most people will know that what would happen is there's a redrawing of kind of boundaries, constituencies, the shape of them will change. And TDs who are already anxious about the next election, maybe they're in Fine Gael and the polls are kind of somewhere between 18%, 20%, 21% um, for the last year or so, already a bit worried about their seat. And when they get these reviews, could they see a large chunk of their, um, you know, maybe strongest support-based places where they're the most popular hived off and put into another constituency is very possible. It happened before. Um, one example comes to mind of Noel Rock. He lost. Yeah, he never shuts out about it, to be frank. Yeah, no, that's my, that is my constituency. So I was like really interested in that anyway. But he did lose a, a good chunk of support. Although I will and say. And then he, he lost his seat. Yeah, he actually did. But he did better in the election than people thought. I remember that much. But not I think. Well enough, um, clearly not. Um, but yeah, so a lot of TDs will be looking at that and kind of anxiously awaiting it. And is, is I that, think there's going to be reactions. Is really that individual self interest? Is that to any extent. Uh, lessened or ameliorated a bit by the fact that there are going to be more seats. So it's a slightly larger pie. I know as you spread that out across the country, it only has a minimal effect, but it will have some effect. It depends on how many extra seats they put in. So Mm. it'll be anywhere up to 181 uh, seats. So I think until you know the exact number of seats, you actually, it's very hard to answer that question. Um, and the, the expectation, yeah. though, I think, so it's currently 160 seats. The expectation yeah. is that it is going to be at the upper end, as in, you know, mid 170s. Yeah. Up so to we're talking a 10% plus increase in the number of seats in the dot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then actually, the way things are going, every electoral cycle after that will need, you know, an extra 15 or so, 10 to 15. Uh, see, so this could go on and on and on until well, there's we, a referendum. Well, we have touched on this before and there is, you know, one of the remits, as I understand it, of this body is to look at electoral reform and th- this particular reform would require a constitutional amendment. But you can't just keep going on and on and you on can't. and throwing more TDs I mean, we need, we'll need you? a new doll, really. You, you need to reconstruct the constitutional imperative there, don't you, Pat? Yeah, and it's not a massive constitutional tweak, to be honest. It yeah. just means changing the numbers yeah. from the maximum to the uh, to the minimum. So it wouldn't require a great deal. I don't think it'll be done by this government, though, to be honest. You don't? No. No, I don't. I actually, oh, well, constitutional, and I suspect that the number of constitutional referendums that this government has, and remember we're supposed to have woman one the about the woman in mm-hmm. the home this autumn, mm-hmm. I would be very surprised, frankly, if we see that this autumn. Yeah. It's not ready. The wording isn't ready. We are, deadlines are creeping up on us to have an information campaign and there isn't agreement on True. what it should be. I had a long conversation with somebody the other day about this who said, not going to happen. You know, now they're not necessarily a decision maker, but they're, they were somebody who are close to decision makers. And uh, so anyway, the, the broader yeah, point give is, you I don't hope. think that this big electoral reform will take place in lifetime. Yeah, quick. well, actually, when Pat says that, he's right, he wouldn't give you much hope because they've had so many years of talking about this particular referendum. I mean, we all know what it's about. And I think everyone's like, oh, we're still talking about this. 
has that was that not done already? Yeah. So yeah, it wouldn't give you hope uh, about all the rest about, of them. I suppose, because yeah. one of the things that the um, that the electoral commission is charged with doing is researching ways of making our elections better. And I think that the, the minister Darrell O'Brien sent a letter, as he's entitled to do, to the commission, suggesting a few things that they might uh, they might consider. Some of which are you know sort of piqued by interest anyway. One is to get rid or at least look at the number of constituency uh, election posters that people are allowed to put up during an election. It's a particular feature of the Irish electoral system that every lamppost is festooned with these these pictures of these handsome candidates uh, presenting <laughs> themselves to the voter. And another one is to get rid of by-elections entirely. They're both quite interesting ideas. Yeah, there's get rid of by-elections is one of the suggestions. Like you said, limit posters or regulate them. Um, lower the voting age from 18 to 16. Um, and some people feel very strongly about that last one, by the way. A lot of people don't care, but some people do. Um, I think the by-election one is really interesting because the, the proposal will be that it will go to like a list system. And like that we is have in the European Parliament. In the European Parliament, exactly. Mm. Um, and I can see the merit in it. It's, but as a, you know how I feel about elections. You know, <laughs> I've made that very clear. Yeah, okay, there's self-interest involved here too. There totally you is. Know? I'm like, yeah. I'd be devastated like if they got rid of by I like a good yeah. by-election Lo- now. Love an old by-election. But it's a good way of testing as well during um, any Thank government. During summer. Summer by-election. <laughs> I like an autumn by-election if I had to pick one. But, you know, it's a good way of testing um, the waters politically because a lot of people don't actually engage in politics until there's an election going on. So it is actually, it's better than obviously What's the argument opinion, in getting rid of them? Simpler. I mean, simpler, mm-hmm. I suppose there's a cost element to some extent. Mm-hmm. Is there an argument at all that they, they they can have a sort of a disproportionate effect on the political system? There have been times in the past in Ireland where governments have fallen or nearly fallen or certainly been seriously destabilised because of, you know, somebody in a constituency somewhere took the hump uh, and, and they only got the chance to express that hump because somebody unfortunately had either resigned or passed on to the great constituency in the sky. Yeah, no, no. Great by, constituency. By, by elections, um, by elections tend to be overinterpreted. My, yeah, in my, in my experience, that mm. they very often, rather than like a hyper localized version of a national opinion poll, in fact, what they are is, you know, just a local scrap that is dominated by local concerns. One can, I mean, you would say that. You know, the most recent by-election we had was two summers ago in Dublin, southeast at Dublin Bay, uh, Dublin Bay South, as it is now, Ivana Bacic romped home. It didn't exactly presage a... uh, reviving of the Labour Party's fortunes. The the main impact was she became the new leader of the Labour Party. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yes. And then there was the Wexford by-election, which was very interesting. So, (laughs) the point about it is, we're in favour of by-elections. number of different reasons. They're great fun and uh, we... We don't. No, we, we neither want nor expect that this uh, reform is going to be introduced. I disagree with Pat. I, I actually think you learn a lot from them. And I remember being out in the campaign trail in the by-election and that's kind of when I started picking up on what people are actually, what they care about. And same with local elections. Often people kind of dismiss them as being just local concerns. The local election, I think it was 2019, was the first time that I'd and I love going out in the campaign trail, heard the level of vicious anger about the housing crisis. That's when I noticed for the first time, this is nearly every house we go to. So you can pick up on things on the election trail. I I feel like... No, no, no. <laughs> I, no, absolutely. It's just what I, what I mean is, and perhaps I expressed myself uh, uh, in with, with not sufficient clarity, is that the results mm. tend to be over-interpreted. Okay, oh, all, all, okay, including by political parties, because they've all, they often are followed by leadership heaves of one sort or another when somebody's deemed not to have. That's how that's how Charlie High became Taoiseach, as I recall. 
That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So and, 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 and by-elections, the by-elections that took place, as we covered in the Bertie series, by-elections that took place in 1994, two by-elections which swung the possibility of the Dáil majority meant that a rainbow coalition was a mathematical possibility and that went on to happen yeah. and uh, Bertie didn't become... Uh, so they, they generally so, add to yeah. the gaiety of the notion. I think we can take it that the official stated position of the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is hold on to by-elections. Um, uh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah we're yeah. both in agreement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, that's the first time actually that we've issued an editorial edict from the podcast. We should really well, not, do not, it more. Not, not for the last. I think we should, no, yeah, we should, we should do, do it every We should do it more from now on. In order to do those things, we do have to be kept in the comfort to which we're accustomed in order to be able to do our jobs and the only way we can do that is by getting some money in and really only the, one of the few ways that we can get some money in is by uh, people subscribing to irishtimes.com In so the absence of government support In in the absence of government support yeah, absolutely which is of course allows us to maintain our 100% independence from the political process <laughs> per your earlier point Pat and in order to do that we rely on you the listener and the reader so let me encourage you yet again uh, to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe and make that contribution we'll be back after this Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And you're very welcome back. Jen, at the start of the summer, you had an interview with Helen McEntee, who was uh, returning from her maternity leave to take up her position as Minister for Justice again. She hasn't had a great summer. No, absolutely not. I have a lot of thoughts about this um, particular issue, and I've kind of been stewing on it all summer. And I, um, I had the pleasure of covering Pat's column last weekend when he was away and I thought about kind of will I write about this and I don't know. See, my reluctance stems somewhat in that I feel like I never want to be like the story or like put myself in it, but I have like strong opinions because of stuff that's happened to me in the past. And when she gave the press conference in Store Street, so this was a couple of days after the tourist had been attacked and we went along, went to the press conference anyway in Story Street. And the American tourist, Stephen Termini, I think his name was, who, was, right. who was very badly assaulted. Yeah, Yeah. so yeah. it was a couple of days after that and people were kind of saying, you know, what's the response from the guards? What's the response from the government? It's not, it's, a, it's not been good enough, really. So we went to that press conference and she was asked a couple of questions. One of them was, you know, do you feel safe uh, in Dublin and do you feel safe walking around city centre? And she said, yes, you know that she would happily walk up and down so she goes to gigs in, in the three arena and no problem. And I actually kind of felt like I was having an outer body experience listening to her because it's just completely untrue. I don't believe that she thinks that. And I think when people read Do you think that, she walks up and down from the three arena? I'm sure she does, but I, I doubt that she would walk around Talbot Street in the middle of the night happily on her own. Like, So I used to live in the city centre 13 years ago. I was attacked three times, a different severity. And like I understand 
like perhaps some of the reasons why it's so bad in the city centre because I have first-hand experience. So what would those reasons be? So I think a lot of it comes down to drugs and I would say that a lot of people kind of in, the, in those areas may have come from disadvantaged backgrounds and they wouldn't have had the chances everybody else would have had experiences which would be horrific um, and they would, you know, maybe have turned to drugs or, or whatever. Um, and I think that is a big part of it, realistically. Um, and I think there's a lack of investment in those areas. Um, so there's historical kind of underinvestment by the state. Um, I think the areas have been kind of ignored up until recently, you know, Pascal Donoghue, the couple of initiatives in the, in the north inner city. But I think a lot of that was let happen for, for decades. And that's why I find it kind of extraordinary because this has been happening for a very long time. And it, I found it galling really to hear her say that it doesn't, it's not a problem. And I understand as well that she kind of in some ways has to say that because if she went out and said, yeah, I feel really unsafe, like that's not going to help anybody, well, I suppose. There but there a, is, a, is there not an alternative one could be more nuanced to actually reflect the kind of reality which exactly yeah. you're describing here, which which to my mind, Pat, again, I've written a little bit about this, is, is, is a mixed bag. There are parts of the city that are very pleasant and yeah. that feel quite safe and there are parts that are less so. And I know you've written about the some of the the inner city projects, which which mm-hmm. Jen refers to there, but it does seem to me that it, um, you know, a nuanced description of the reality would take in the fact that the city at times uh, is a very pleasant place to be, but at other times parts of it feel both unsafe, uh, dirty, uncared for, and there are serious social problems in parts of the city centre that are reflected in the behaviour of people on the street that make other people feel insecure. I don't think it's possible to dispute that really, and but I think. What is politically relevant at this stage is that there is a sense amongst very many people and people in a number of the parties that I've spoken to who, you know, stay across public opinion through a variety of means, not least just feedback, you know, from their TDs and their other local representatives. And they would say that there is a very strong perception that the problem is getting worse. And the problem with the, 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 the fear of crime uh, is that it is, you know, not the, the relationship between the level of crime and the fear of crime amongst people is not a linear one, is that high profile crimes lead to, you know, a surge in the fear of crime. And that is what makes it politically relevant, that people feel their city. You're absolutely right that they feel the city is filthy. And for the... You know, I'm not in the city centre as much as I uh, uh, as much as I used to be, um, but any time I am there, the, the the dirt of the place and the stink in some laneways and off ma- off main uh, main areas is uh, is is abominable. Well, there and are is- an interlocking series of reasons for that, you know, and you know, and one is the fact that we have thousands of uh, people who, who have nowhere to go to who are sleeping on those streets. That's one of the reasons. We don't have thousands of people all, sleeping on the streets. Well, we have hundreds. We, we, we don't. We have, uh, there is, yeah, a couple of hundred people sleeping, absolutely. And there is a lack of facilities uh, for, for those people. But there also, I think the problem of public urination uh, is one that is not principally uh, led by people who are sleeping on the streets. It's led by 
people coming up, mostly men coming out of uh, coming out of pubs, right? And the lack of a police presence on the on the streets, and the lack of constant cleaning of those streets, which is a matter for the local authority, is one that leads us in that uh, leads us in that position. More seriously, people feel a threat of violence on the streets, and that is a rational feeling because there are it seems increasing, there's certainly increasing high profile incidents in, uh, in, in recent months. And that I think, and people in politics would say, is, uh, is, is sort of humming below the surface politically and just waiting to explode into the autumn. And I think it is a real challenge for Helen McEntee. Listening to Pat say that, it, it, it reminds me of something we touched on in the in the our extensive Bertie O'Hearn series, which was in the run-up to the 1997 election when crime, gangland crime at the time, became a really big issue that had some impact on, you know, on the on, on political outcomes. And you could see exactly the same thing happening with this debate about what's going on in the city, couldn't you? Yeah, definitely. And I think Pat's right. It is bubbling away there beneath the surface. It has been for a very long time, which is the point that I was making. Um, and... You know, earlier on we touched on the idea of the performance, you know, the performance element of being a minister. And I think this, that the optics of Helen McEntee kind of strolling up Talbot Street, I, I think that was a really bad idea um, because it comes across just kind of insincere. You know, like a walk up and down Talbot Street isn't going to change anything. Um, and all you have to do is look at the headlines today to see that they misjudge this because now we see that they're going to send out the public order unit um, the mounted unit. Uh, there's going to be armed guards um, patrolling. And dogs. And, and dogs, yeah. Mission, I mean, yeah. Th- th- that seemed like a panicky reaction, the way that that, that well, was presented yesterday. Because then, again, that was rolled back on over the last 24 hours and the dogs won't be on the street and there won't be armed well, police I think on the street. They're in yeah. backup. But my point is that their initial response and reaction and comments, I think, were all off kilter. Wrong. I'm just going to call it wrong. Yeah. And I think people saw that and I think that's really bad for Fine Gael because you know they're the party of law and order or whatever you want to say whatever way they look at themselves this is really important for them and they're falling down and now it's this delayed response and like you said then tic-tac is it happening or is it not happening also looks really bad um, and I think this will be one of the biggest issues of her tenure as Minister for Justice far beyond the noise that's been made about the hate crime bill although that will linger on forever and ever um, the only the only other thing I would say in her defence, I saw some commentary in the weeks after about unnamed people in Fine Gael saying, oh, well, she should be focusing on this, this the bread and butter stuff, not this other airy, fairy stuff. And what they're referring to there is the, you know, domestic and gender-based crime. I mean, that's also outrageous. <laughs> you know, it is mm. possible to have two priorities at the same time. Um, and I wouldn't agree with that either. So the kind of the, the backbench mutterings there were essentially that, that she was moving away from what a Fine Gael Minister for Justice yeah. should be focusing on towards these more quote-unquote kind yeah. of woke issues. Even though yeah. violence within the home okay. is one of the leading no, causes of yeah, it's death. Not, yeah, and it's also not, you know, not, a, not a woke no, issue. It's not. You know? No, it's not. Yeah, that's what I was... Yeah, exactly. It's, it's also there, a law and order issue. But whereas there is, there is kind of a general that's sense of hate, yeah. hate speech and yeah. hate speech stuff, yeah. hate crime stuff is... That is a bit... The sense among some... That is a bit of a woke agenda and they would be better off putting more guards on the yeah. streets. So I hate to be shallow about this, but does this mean that the bookies' odds of her became, becoming the next Fine Gael leader have, uh, have lengthened? I think that she has suffered over the summer. Yeah, I do, 100%. 
Right, we'll move on to another issue, Pat, which has been in the news quite a lot over the last week or so, and I noticed it exercising the letter writers of the Irish Times, so we always try to pay attention to here, which is the announcement that um, that the, the, the Irish state is militarily neutral, but it's not necessarily neutral on issues such as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has in, in the past um, supplied support, non-lethal support of one sort or another, um, but now it's training or is proposing to train um, people how to how to fire how to fire guns is that unprecedented I don't know if it's unprecedented to be honest but it is certainly and you refer to it as an announcement can I correct you it wasn't announced it's a, a story revelation. by Conor Gallagher uh in, in our paper, and it would seem on the face of it to conflict with um, uh, to conflict with every previous announcement made in relation to the nature of Ireland's aid to Ukraine, which was uh, which suggested that uh, suggested explicitly that what was being provided was non-lethal aid. Now, perhaps they're being trained to fire their guns in a non-lethal way. Uh, if so, you know, then. One would wonder. Really uh, one, one would wonder uh, about it. I think I'm surprised there wasn't more of uh, a fuss about this, and I suspect that it is something that could, if you'll pardon the, um, if you pardon the expression, blow up underneath the government in the uh, in the autumn, because it will certainly be challenged about it by the opposition. Uh, about it being a violation of Irish neutrality. The Department of Defence said to Connor that it wasn't, the, they were very satisfied that this wasn't a violation of uh, military Who neutrality. Who does the interpreting of this? And, well, that's done by the government, of course. And one of the things mm-hmm. about neutrality, of course, is that it means whatever the government of the day says uh, says it to mean. But that would immediately beg the question as to, well, why wasn't it announced previously? If this is one of the areas, as the Department has now confirmed it is, in which Irish troops are offering training to Ukrainian troops, one would wonder why um, that, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't always the case. Interestingly, and um, uh, there was, in, this is in the memo that, uh, that, that, that Connor reported on, that uh, he says that, sorry, this wasn't in the memo, but it, it was implicit in the content of the memo that it's understood that he, he reported that officials removed a marksmanship module from the memo which went to cabinet, he reported, amidst concern it could breach neutrality and may be rejected by Green Party ministers, and that is where the political difficulty may be, uh, I suspect, within the Green Party. Well, the suggestion that... So, amongst these areas, such as mine clearing, first aid, etc., etc., weapons use, they are among the areas that uh, the Irish Army is offering uh, training or providing training or will be providing training to Ukrainians. But officials removed a marksmanship module, which is, I suppose, maybe firing the guns a bit more lethally. Yeah, this is very, yeah. angels, it's very peculiar. A, angels yes. on the head of pins here, very isn't much it? So. You can train somebody but so to much fire about a rifle, the Irish neutrality, but not to be a sniper. Is. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I suspect that there will be, at the very least, there will be concerns raised in the Green Party about this in the autumn. Yeah, and people before profit were straight out the trap saying the government said previously this was not happening. Did yeah. they lie? And they're right about that. But mm. now, of course, to them, mm. any involvement in Ukraine is a violation of military neutrality. But, but for the Greens, the previously announced involvement in training Ukrainian soldiers was not a violation of neutrality. I wonder about this. Yeah. I also have a Ukraine story, which is very 
loosely linked, but picked up on my travels. So because it was the summer, I got to go to Glanty's and disappear for a couple of <laughs> couple of hours uh, to Donegal. And for the summer school? For the McGill Summer School, mm. yeah. And last time I went was 2017, I think. You were there, Pat, that year. I was there every year. You're doing yes. a, a talk, I think. Um, and anyway, during one of the talks, um, there was a debate about, you know, Ukraine and, and Ireland and Russia and the role, et cetera, et cetera, of all the, all the different uh, countries. And just this really interesting nugget came up that a lot of Ukrainian, wounded Ukrainian soldiers are coming here uh, to Ireland to recover, basically in hospital and, you know, get surgery. But a lot of them found that the health service is so bad that they were told, oh, you can get that surgery, but it'll be like in a couple of years. So the wounded soldiers are heading back off and the Ukrainian ambassador was saying, so basically they've realised the Irish health system is terrible and... They're all leaving. But they're like, better to head back to Kiev. They're better get, to head get, back to get, get, get their treatment there. That, yeah, that, just an interesting nugget. That is a very interesting and perhaps very, very tell, telling anecdote, kind of blackly comic in its, uh, in its own way. I, I suppose before we go, we should mention the fact, and we, you and I don't really have a leg to stand on on this, Jen, but the very, very long um, uh, recess, uh, holidays, as some people would say, that the political establishment takes. When did the dog go into recess? Hold on a sec. I do have a leg to stand on. I've worked the entire well, so did I. <laughs> so did I. I just feel slightly <laughs> embarrassed that I'm heading off on my holidays. Don't. You've earned it, Hugh. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So when did when did the doll recess? How long is the doll recess? Late, late the, July. Uh, like yeah, the 19th the or 20th, was it? Rose, I think, by the 19th or yeah. 20th. July, it's returning on the 20th of September. I don't have a particular difficulty with that. In fact, I'm in favour of long holidays for politicians and political correspondences. <laughs> The, uh, uh, as it happens. But the Cabinet isn't meeting until the 5th of September, mm. which is a bit later than usual. Normally, you would expect it to be getting back the last week of August. And it will be a bit of a dash yeah. towards the budget, which is on the 10th of, uh, of October. There will also be attempts, once again, to revive power-sharing institutions in the North. There's going to be a lot of European business, some of it related to Ukraine, some of it, uh, some of it not. But I think but the budget will be, be the main thing, won't it? The budget will yeah. be the main thing, yeah. Yeah, but the, yeah usually they have a, a cabinet meeting. There, you know, they'd stop somewhere the early August, August and then they have one around the 25th or 27th or whatever, and that hasn't happened. Do we have think-ins? Yeah, there's a load oh, of think-ins yeah. and I'm missing nearly all of them. <laughs> yes, we have think-ins. They How are, did that happen? I like that chuckle. Yeah, <laughs> they are an beginning, I, I think, around the 11th and 12th Fianna Fáil meeting in the Horse and Jockey so in Pat Tipperary. Pat his huge leather-bound binder <laughs> yes, blowing the dust Fianna off. Gale is in Limerick, Labour is in Maynooth, Social Democrats and Sinn Féin in Dublin. So they'll all, yeah, about the 11th, 12th of September, so a couple of weeks yet. I can tell you, can't wait, Pat. I'm moist with anticipation. (laughs) I have to leave you with that image, really. I'm sorry. I'd like to apologise to all our listeners for that. We will leave it there, though, for for today. Thanks very much to Jen and to Pat for for joining us. Thanks to Declan Conlon, our producer, and JJ Vernon, our engineer. We will be back very soon indeed, but with somebody else other than me, because I'm off on my holliers. So until then, thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.